0: France going to the World Cup. Get over This fellow Ronaldo is a cop.
2: Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, that's actually a dog, sir. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good luck. I don't draw teacups. It's not my style. I think i would rather punches. What you doing
1: down here, you me a man? Hello, and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast with Owen and Ken.
3: Hello, Owen. Hi, Ken Eric.
1: Uh, It's been a lackluster qualifying campaign so far. Let's not beat around the bush on that one. Punctuated by a few moments of late drama. Although even John O'Shea's goal in Gelsenkirchen seems a long time ago now. But if you want to keep the head up about these things, look no further than UEFA.com's preview of tomorrow night's action. So they've got a little thing where they probably devote about 20 to 25 words to each group. Mm -hmm. a, A summation of where the teams are and the scenario after potential results on Friday night. And uh, I'm going to quote from it here. If it is a draw in Berlin, that's Germany against Poland. I uh-huh. uh, ran the same time a little bit earlier. Ireland would climb to within three points of pole position with victory against Gibraltar and Farrow. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, we're talking, about third, we're talking about scrambling around for third place here. UEFA tells me that if the results go our way on Friday night, we will be within three points of top spot. And the Germans and the Poles and the Scots will all be looking over their many shoulders. Looking
3: forward to their game against Gibraltar, I imagine.
1: <laughs> I'm probably looking forward to their game against Ireland as
3: well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nah, it's not I don't right. look at the table, Alan. I honestly, I don't look at the table you because look, you look at who's
1: taking points off who.
3: No, I just look at what Ireland. At? I just, oh. look, I'm just looking at Ireland. I'm just looking, I'm just looking at what we can control with our own hands. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is, Ireland need to win these games. And if they don't, they're not going to go to the Euros. Do they need to win all four games? They need to win the next two and then get. Probably four points out of the next two. Yeah. So beat Poland, draw with Germany, then we we're in a pretty bloody good chance of Do- making uh, the Euros.
1: Dodge these two banana skins. We talked a lot about banana skins. I think in a recent podcast. Mm. These ones. Well, this one won't be. This isn't even. This is a dried up. It's shriveled away. This banana skin Gibraltar at this point hasn't it? It's not something you're going to slip on.
3: Eh, no, it's more. It's more of just a banana. It's in the earth now. A, a nice, a nice banana chopped up and in in a bowl of you know whatever it is. You know, people people eat. I can't. I find I can't eat that stuff myself. It gives me kind of an upset stomach. What bananas? Yeah, really. Just doesn't agree with me, you know. But I know a lot of people. Oh, well, it's yeah, kind yeah, of a popular yeah. health food. Yeah, people no, exercise a lot. They like to eat bananas. I'd have, at
1: least, yeah, I'd have a banana day anyway.
3: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I you know, I wouldn't be keen on it, but that's what that's what you're both representing more than the skin. Would you? Would you? <sighs> <sighs> be honest, I'm not, a big, I'm not a big, fruit that's man. Not good. I try. I I do try to eat it, but it's like medicine, you know. I'm more of a vegetables man. Oh, well, that's okay. I can, eat, I can eat vegetables, but just something about the uh, acidic, uh, yeah. We'll mean, <laughs> <laughs> we've hit an impasse very quickly. I like that
1: like you've turned to Simon there as it to say, where are we going with these conversations? I, was, no, I don't, don't, know. don't, don't, da, da, da. the report on sport music is in there, it's fine, we'll go with it, but I do have to mention that we will head to, I know you know these things, if you're looking at the podcast, you see the blurb, you see what's on it, but it's sometimes nice for me to verbalize it as well. Okay. we we'll be heading to Faro to chat to Emmett Malone. Uh, about the match against the banana that is Mm -hmm. Gibraltar. Uh, Richie Sadler is going to be in studio. And um, Ilan Kurdi is the name of the poor little three-year-old Syrian boy whose image you've undoubtedly seen today washed up on a beach in Turkey. Really, really horrendous stuff. He died um, along with his five-year-old brother and their mum. I think the father survived, but they were attempting, apparently, to flee to Canada to join relatives there. And They'd applied for asylum in Canada. Hadn't got it, but we're going over anyway. And now, what Ireland and the UK have been sitting fairly idly by on this crisis, Germany have stepped forward and welcomed hundreds of thousands of refugees. Um, the spirit behind that decision has been evident at football grounds around the country. You mentioned this on Monday, Ken, on the podcast that the fans of various teams have put together banners and all sorts of stuff emblazoned with "Refugees Welcome" as a message that they're putting out there. So we're going to get a bit more detail on how sport has kind of got involved in that from ESPN's Stefan Ursfeld a little later.
3: Yeah, I mean it is it's it's a very, I mean, it's a huge story all across Europe at the moment. Um, you know, as you were alluding to there on Germany, has kind of stepped up really. In a way which most of the other countries in Europe have conspicuously failed to do. Uh, Germany saying, um, you know, 800,000 refugees, they they think they can take 800,000 refugees in this uh, kind of crisis. I mean, it's not as though Germany uh, necessarily hasn't been leading the way until now. Mm. Uh, If you look at uh, Europe, the country which has, um, which actually has accepted the highest uh, proportion of refugees as a percentage of, their own population, population is Sweden. Um, Sweden, which like Ireland is a long way away from the from the Mediterranean, uh, from the shores of which uh, most of the refugees are, are coming. Uh, so you can see that Ireland's sort of geographical distance from the situation isn't necessarily the excuse for essentially sidestepping responsibility that... I think probably quite a lot of Irish people are happy to see it as. Mm. Uh, I mean, if you look down to the Sweden, Malta is next. Malta is obviously, uh, I don't know if it's definitely true to say that Malta is closer to Tunisia than it is to Sicily, but it's maybe it's you know it's somewhere in, in between. So Malta is certainly uh, right there. And then Switzerland, which obviously isn't an EU country. They're the three uh, countries which have accepted the highest... Uh, proportion as a percentage of their population. Germany is going to leap up that list now. Ireland is uh, right down at the bottom. uh, If you look at the EU countries in terms of the number of migrants that they've accepted and also um, has the lowest or rather I shouldn't say the lowest Hungary, uh, Poland and one other country, Greece have a lower rate of accepting uh, applications uh, accepting asylum applications uh, from refugees. So in Ireland the rate is 37%. 37%. So there's a 63% your asylum application will be rejected. So that
1: argument you make there makes a lot of sense then, that the idea that, oh, well, we're just too far away, I mean, what, what can we, we really this do doesn't about really this? doesn't really have anything to do with When us. refugees do arrive in Ireland, they're generally not 60,
3: getting 63% of uh, their uh, applications are rejected. So, um, I mean, you do wonder about this uh, in terms of what... I, mean, I was looking at a poll, for instance, on the, the journal, we're running poll, uh, where they were there, you know, they had given sort of four options along the lines of, you know, what what do you think about this? Should it be? No, uh, you know, uh, we, we don't have the resources. We can't possibly accept any uh, more refugees. Or yes, we absolutely should. Or, oh, it's worth thinking about. Or, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And looking at that, it was a very slight majority for the two options between um, between it's worth thinking about and yes, we should accept more refugees. But the biggest... Individual, uh, you know, like I, I can't remember the exact percent, but something like forty-seven percent of people have said no. Absolutely, we really? don't have the, we don't have the resources yet. Really, almost half the people. Yeah, I'm, so, a-
1: I'm actually shocked about that.
3: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you, you look at it and you have people then sort of in the comments saying things like, "Well, you know, we've got the people in housing waiting lists in this country. You know, where are we going to put people? You know, if we accept people, it's all very well to say this and that. You know, um, it's uh, I mean, it's not an easy it's not an easy question. Course, I mean, does it does, it does like, seem like a, the obvious. The obvious correct answer, the obvious moral answer, is that if people are in danger of their lives, and of course you should give them safe haven, and then worry about what you're going to and do. And there
1: are also the bigger historical questions uh, that have been rightly raised over the last little while about how dependent Ireland have been on the largesse of other countries. Yeah, in our own history, yeah, and I know that's not really
3: in our own history. And you know, our own history own is also like the last five or six years. You know what I mean? We're not we're not just talking about something that happened in the 1840s. You know, we're talking about a flood of people that have left this country in the last few years, uh, not fleeing, you know, ISIS, but unemployment, mm-hmm. and who've been able to go, uh, go to the United States, go to Australia, go to, you know, elsewhere in the EU, um, and that's been something which I think our government has has used as a kind of a, you know, a, a pressure valve. Um, in alleviating some of the problems in Ireland, you know, I we mean, well,
1: allow allow people to leave, and therefore,
3: well, you know, you can always leave, mm. uh, and so in in some other countries, people don't necessarily have that option we have here, but we're not necessarily so keen to recognise uh, when other people are. Need need some help, so we will talk yep. uh, about that with Stefan um, a little later on in the program.
1: We're talking transfer window now. We'll talk a lot with the, with Richie about De Gea <laughs> because I'm fascinated by that entire story. It's amazing, uh,
3: really amazing. Yeah, I mean, what a balls Raymond Madrid made of that. Yeah. You know, it is. Is, it, is. It, is that what it was? Well, I I think so. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't really I don't see how anything they're saying makes sense. You know, I just don't see how you know they can have. <laughs> If it's someone, uh, on the one hand, Manchester United obviously didn't want this transfer to go through. Maybe they did ultimately, maybe when they looked at it in the cold light of the last few hours of the transfer window and thought about how it was all going to add up, maybe they're like, okay, we can strike a deal. But, you know, they're quite happy, I think, to keep David De Gea. Real Madrid, it's not so clear that they really wanted David De Gea or that they wanted to pay for him. That's not clear. so we will we will talk a bit about that because I don't know how David Hay is supposed to feel about this whole thing, um, but uh, it wasn't, of course, the only exciting story uh, surrounding Manchester United. They don't, they, 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 you know, Anthony Marshall. Now this is something we had mentioned. It was it, there was talk of this happening on Monday. Eventually, it did go through. It's all confirmed, and um, Monaco's uh, vice president. Uh, Vadim Veselyev has has said some amazing things. Has just wiped the the sm-
1: just finished wiping the smile off his face.
3: Initially, Marshall was not for sale. It was absolutely not planned. Since last week, United started to make offers which we declined several times. Twenty one point six million pounds. These, these figures are all given in pounds because I'm I'm reading them from ESPN. But that is, I guess, thirty million. Well, nearly thirty million years. Twenty one I'll give you the sterling figures rather than try and do the currency conversion, man. Twenty one point six million. Twenty eight point eight million. 40 million, I guess it is. 36 million, 50 million. We're going up in 10 million euro increments here. Even 50.4 million with bonuses. This is like how United's negotiation went, according to Monaco's Western. On Sunday, the player got such an offer that he couldn't have declined. He asked us to find a solution. And On Monday morning, Manchester United made an offer to Monaco which the club couldn't refuse. It's absolutely unique. It's the price of Luis Suarez or Neymar, the best players in the world. Right now, English football is on a different financial level. And if Manchester United decides to buy somebody it's very hard to stop them. Uh, very hard to stop yeah, them. Yeah. And indeed, why would you want to? Indeed, yes. Once it gets to a certain point. Uh, now, in terms of the conditions, um, because they're, they are claiming that you know, it was like a 70, 80 million euro offer, but there's 50 million guaranteed plus three 10 million euro bonuses. Do you want to know what the trigger clauses oh, are oh, yeah. according to what, um, have what have been reported in the French press? The first will be paid when Martial scores 25 goals in all competitions for United. The second will be triggered if he earns 25 caps for France between now and June 2019. So that's four years away. Third will come into effect should Marshall win the Ballon d'Or as the world's <laughs> best player between now and the end of his four year contract at Old Trafford. So they'll probably save that last ten million euros.
1: But they'd hope they'll have to pay that first ten million.
3: The and the second, in fairness, because if they're not paying those if they're not paying those two tranches of ten million euros, something has gone badly wrong with this transfer. This guy has to succeed now. He's so expensive that he has to succeed. This was the the argument Fiorentino perez used to make when he was paying you know massive sums 30 wasn't it 37 million for figo 49 million for zidane um he was like look there's no risk when you pay this much for a player mm-hmm. a superstar like this there's no risk of failure the guy is world class he's 24 karat gold you don't have to worry when you buy a player like this, you know he's going to perform.
1: Yeah, it used to be Figo, Zidane, these players, who had already proved not only their, their talent, but their bulletproof confidence. So mm. it's fine, right? If Zidane's going to walk into Real Madrid. We know he's going to play well.
3: Yeah. Can we say the same thing about this guy? He's he's 19. Imagine being 19. And this is... I mean, it's great. You know, he's, he's rich now. That's great. He's achieved wealth. But that's, you know, only one side of the career. Now he's actually gotta step up and, and perform. This is not gonna be easy. The the expectation on a player who arrives for that much money is so gigantic. It's it's not normal for it's not normal for nineteen year olds to do
1: Imagine that. how much of a legend his mates think he is right now though. <laughs> Lads I'm gonna mind you yeah they paid eighty five million. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of clauses in there but I'll I'll reach those pretty impressed
3: even the people he he didn't get on with in school are like sending him are writing on his Facebook going congratulations (laughs) 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 Uh, yeah I mean look I don't know if I'm worth 80 million euros says Marshall but I don't worry about the sums I'm going there for the football side of things the price is between the two clubs and I don't see myself as being under any pressure my family were happy for me I'm going to such a big club they are definitely a bit nervous given my high price but I'm going to stay focused on proving my worth So that's what he says. And, you know, hopefully it works out for him. Difficult situation. More normal at Manchester United than at at other clubs, uh, given that they now have signed the three most expensive teenagers in the history of world football with uh, Martial, Luke Shaw, and Wayne Rooney. Um, The three, uh, they're the three most expensive ever players under the age of 20. Mm. Uh, Only really Paris Saint Germain, Um, Marquinhos, I think, uh, giving them a competition on that front. Uh, where are we now Jack oh yeah Jack Butland we just mentioned the England substitute goalkeeper um uh, he's saying <laughs> I, I think this guy's gonna make it out he's obviously he's he's been given his head at Stoke uh, shea given his mentor uh, watching on from the bench as young butland uh, takes on the mantle uh, discarded by asmir Begovic and uh I think he might make it in English football.
1: What gives you that impression?
3: Because he's given a bewildering well I mean it's it's obviously a clip from a longer interview but he says he's just had a go out of nowhere at people going down injured faking injury pretending to be injured rolling around. He says it's always wound me up it's one of my pet hates. I want to go and pick people up. He says it's a shame you can't slap people around the face anymore you get sent off. I played rugby till I was 14 and it's just not something he did. If you were really hurt, you stayed down. So, uh, wow, he is. Uh, he, part of it might be the fact that he's got like a broken finger, but he's playing on anyway. He's an Iron Man. I've got a special glove that protects the finger. It's not on my mind. It's something I'm able to ignore and get on with playing. But so, it's a, he's a rugby man. He is a rugby man, and he's a he's a brave a brave man. He's an old school English football man, and uh, I think he's got the character it's going to take to succeed in this game. Kevin Doyle. Yeah, Kevin Doyle is is obviously with the Ireland squad at the moment and we're going to talk to Emmett as you mentioned on to uh, to get he's over in, in in Portugal at the moment getting set for the Gibraltar match tomorrow and we'll hear a bit more what's going on with the Ireland uh, boys but Kevin Doyle is uh, now enjoying life with Colorado Rapids says he wants to add lots more Ireland caps he's got 61 already but he wants to Add lots more. He says playing at altitude in Colorado, training every day in thirty degrees, it's easy to be fit and to feel healthy and strong. Hopefully, he chose the manager here when I come and train. So he's uh, he's feeling good. He's scoring goals, uh, and he's uh, he's uh, he's raring to go. I suppose um, he is teammates now. Colorado Rapids with Sean St Ledger. Is that where he is now? Sean St Ledger has has uh, arrived at uh, at the old uh, Colorado Rapids. Um, but there is... Uh, I have a bad piece of news. Oh, no. uh, on- Not
1: another breach of discipline because didn't he lose his contract at his previous club?
3: He <laughs> did, yeah. <ya? laughs> um, the, the story on that occasion had to do with uh, Sean St. Ledger uh, going... Essentially, they were playing in New York. He was with Orlando. Orlando Sentinels. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, were play- they played in New York. And then St. Ledger and a teammate... Missed the flight and missed the next day training too, and turned up two days later.
1: <laughs> Seduced by the bright lights of it's Big Apple, huh?
3: Seems as though they were they, they got sucked into some kind of New York City, a New York state of mind. <laughs> and uh, uh, anyway, Orlando Sentinel's reckon that was that was enough, and they terminated him. But Colorado Rapids decided to take a choice, uh, take a chance on him. Rather. But the interesting thing now is that he's in the team with, with his old his old uh, Ireland teammate Kevin Doyle. Old and maybe future Ireland team. Maybe the bracing effect of training at altitude and 30 degree heat will will improve his level of fitness too. Maybe he'll he'll rediscover his form. But Doyle is like a designated player. You know, so Doyle is like one of the big money players in the team. But St. Ledger, St. Ledger was earning about 120,000 um, 120, euros. Or it was $140,000, I think it was, at Orlando. Then got sacked. So would you say he's making even more than that in Colorado Rapids? I don't know. I was trying to find the the most recent uh, payroll because they do publish their payroll, you know, down to the dollar, which is you can go and and see exactly how much everyone's getting paid, exactly how much Robbie Keane gets paid more than all the other players, apart from, you know, a couple of exceptions, maybe Lampard, I don't know. But uh, so Kevin Doyle is probably now earning like 20 times as much as John Leisure, which must be kind of a bitter pill in a way. I see also from uh, Joe.ie hunted out the story that, in fact, St. Leisure is not. Uh, going out with Taylor Swift.
1: What? But they were photographed together. Therefore, they must have been going out.
3: Saint Ledger has finally put the rumors to bed. <laughs> he says, "I was with my girlfriend. We knew a few people there and went to Taylor Swift's after-show for her New Year's Eve bash. We ended up talking and had a picture taken. We got chatting for five minutes. She was really down to earth, and that was it. And uh, now this all uh, this was came up, I think, on Soccer Republic." And right. they said they said to him, Oh, you know, what's this, what's all this about you and Taylor Swift? And and said Leisure, I now said something like, you know, no comment. Or something like that. Oh, mysterious. I didn't interview in an Irish TV station. They were asking me about Taylor Swift. Let's be realistic here. It was a stupid question. And I was answering questions sarcastically. They asked if she was coming to Orlando. I said, Well I don't think she's coming down there, but she might come to the game in New York. And they released that. But not when I said she already had a boyfriend. The power of social media. So that's uh, <laughs> so you know, yeah, obviously t- Taylor Swift. Maybe Seneja will be one of those people who gets invited to come uh, out onto the stage during one of her shows. If she if she does a show like in Aspen or or whatever, maybe he falls into that kind of friend category now with Lena Dunham and uh, you know and those guys, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe not. Like uh, one way or the other, it seems is he's not here for the international break. He's got plenty of time to focus on his fitness, his form. And it's football.
1: That's the end of Ken report on sport. Stop
0: it! That's
2: one of those things.
3: Stop it! How many players can do this? Deathman can never die!
0: One of those things, Death man can never die. Only the actors who play him. No, he did. No, he
2: did. Do you think Robbie Keane just said, You know what? Any questions about me being the MVP of this league? I think he just said right there. Oh yeah. He's got more of a tandem. Able.
1: By the way, I think he said that Orlando. Terminated Sean St Ledger again, which seems to me a little bit, you know, they 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 could terminate his contract, but actually terminate Sean St Ledger for going for hanging around New York a little too long.
3: They terminated his they terminated his contract. To be fair, uh, let's his bring, employment was terminated.
1: Let's bring Richie Sadler in at this point. Richie, how are you? Owen, oh, and how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Busy week with the transfer window and the, the, the couple of international games. First of all, who are you blaming? Manchester United. It's all a blame game around De Gea. Is it Manchester United's fault? Is it Real Madrid's fault? What's your reading? Does, did Real Madrid really want to sign him? Did Man United want to let him go? What happened there? That's a lot of questions to start off. That's
2: about four <laughs> questions in a row. <laughs> um, uh, who yeah. do I blame? Who do you
1: blame? Let's go back to the first one. That's probably a better way of interviewing.
2: Sure. Well, the first thing I remember, because it's so late... Uh, a load of people I think looking in and they say, why is it always left so late and I remember last week last year in one of the times he interviewed Sean Dyche he, and we covered a load of topics most of them obviously didn't make the final cut of it but he, he what he said was he said it always makes me laugh when you hear pundits or, or, or read journalists being critical of people for leaving deals to the last minute and he's kind of saying do people not realise if that deal was available if the exact same deal you signed on the last day was available earlier in the window you'd sign it so Obviously, something moved late on um, Real Madrid. If you're going to ask me for a simple club as to who to blame, um, because
1: they left, it t- they did leave it too late.
2: Well, obviously, it's it's, it's bringsmanship. I mean, there's nothing unique in this deal that isn't probably in, in, in the majority of other deals that were signed up that were concluded this week. Um, they thought that, that, that by leaving it too late, that, that Man United would move on something, and whether they did or didn't, it, they just badly misjudged. it. I think the only difference is
1: that there was so much detail revealed in public. There were all these. There was the Real Madrid statement that was countered by the Man United statement. Each of them going into minute detail as to when a certain email was sent and when a player was registered, whose responsibility was to register a certain player. It just was bonkers. You don't normally get that. You know, there might be a quick statement from either either club, but they don't normally go into that much detail.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the the basic point about it is. I mean, it is true. All the detail came out, and it was as though they're trying to bore their critics into submission. <laughs> <It did> give, <laughs> by the time the Man United one came we out, I was thinking,
2: it kind of worked, yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but like you know, the the idea of brink, brinksmanship—that's uh, exactly what happened. I mean, Real Madrid just unfortunately fell over the brink and plunged to transfer the abyss of transfer failure. Uh, if they had offered a reasonable uh, sum or an ex- uh, you know a deal that Manchester United thought was acceptable presumably that deal would have got done, but Real Madrid, for whatever reason, didn't do that. And now, <laughs> as David Squires had in his in his uh, cartoon about this, uh, we are left with no option but to save ourselves £30 million and sign him for free next summer. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it just seems to me that so Real Madrid wanted to skimp on the fee. There's no other explanation for it. I mean, they were trying to skimp on it all the way, and now... They, they're they going to end up not having to pay any of it.
1: Well, there's no way that he'll just stay. Uh, I saw some headline this morning that Manchester United are looking at extending his contract you
3: now. Well, that's what I that's what I wondered, because if I was David De Gea, I'd be pretty annoyed about this. Annoyed with Real Madrid? Yeah. Unle- mm-hmm.
1: Unless he knew what they were doing. But it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like there was much rhyme or reason to it.
3: Well, David De Gea ha- had like... Um, if they said, listen,
1: David, what's going to happen is there ultimately we're going to sign you next summer, right? Mm. And you're going to get paid more money because we don't have to pay any transfer fee. Yeah. So just keep the head down. There's going to be a lot of headlines. There's going to be a lot of emails. There's going to be a lot of statements on transfer deadline day, but probably won't happen this time. Keep the head down. We'll get you next summer.
3: Then he'd be reasonably pleased. Well, he probably wouldn't have moved out of his house then. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he, he's. It's just a massive uh, disruption to his life uh, for the sake of Real Madrid saving some coin. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, if I was in his position, I'd be thinking, why have I been put through this? I've been sitting here next to Victor Valdez and, what's he, Anders Lindegaard. All the other goalkeepers, yeah. You know, w- watching these Manchester United games with sort of narrowed eyes and pursed lips. Uh, uh, Lou Van Gaal says, my head isn't right. And this is also that Real Madrid can save some dough. And, oh, all of a sudden, I'm not actually going. And I've told my girlfriend that I'm going. Like, you know, she's a kind of uh, musician in Spain and uh, obviously wanted him to be back over. And, oh, that's all off. Sorry about that. I'm still going to be in Manchester. Uh, you can still see me on the Easy Jet. You know what I mean? I'd be kind of thinking, why have they done this to me? Why have why have why have I been forced to go through this? Real Madrid were telling everyone they're going to sign him for however long it was. You know, since last year, they, you know, this has been this talk has been going on, and now he's been left high and dry. If I was him, I'd be thinking, well, do I really want to play for these guys now?
2: I assume he knows the detail of what went of what went wrong specifically i know everyone's kind of bombarding us all that the, the two clubs are trying to save face and and blame the other but i assume De hay knows specifically like who let the ball drop and when so whether that impacts which club he'd like to stay for or sign for i don't know the the the, the possibility of him signing an extension is not unthinkable and i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for him to do because if he was he's, a, he's one year left in his deal so he's on whatever wage currently at the moment and everywhere you go you increase your wage if you sign a new deal elsewhere. It's not necessarily a bad thing for him if he was to sign an extension to his current Man United deal. His wages for those 12 months would rock it up. He would include, uh, as as you hear with a lot of clubs now, there's a specific clause in it that there's a buyout clause. So he would put a transfer value on him. Um, and if, if Real Madrid really want him next year, they'll pay it. But also because he'll be going in at a higher wage level, his Madrid wages will jump as well. And he doesn't have the pressure of playing towards the last few months of his career, knowing that he's out of contract and that fear of injury and all that. Although stuff. I'd imagine
1: if he was out of contract and uh, he went around Madrid, they'd presumably offer him crazy money anyway, given mm. that they'd be saving on, on transfer fees there, mm. I would have thought.
3: Yeah, I mean, either way. He can make a lot of money out of the situation. It's a bit. Of, it's a bit. It's maybe his dignity has been bruised a little bit. But Man-, Man United would throw money at him to get him to stay. at Real Madrid will be throwing money at him to get him to to join them on a free. Well, Manchester
1: so. United have thrown apparently eighty million euro at a, a transfer fee alone for this Anthony Marshall, nineteen year old Monaco. Uh, well, I mean,
3: the eighty million is is a um, disputed figure. Depends yeah. who you believe. So basically, Monaco and the French media and Arsene Wenger all say it's eighty million. <laughs> uh Wenger said I heard but I don't know if he heard it from like the keep front page and uh, 80 million, and whereas the journalists who are taking their information from Manchester United will will say that it's 50 million or 36 million pounds so either way though it's a,
2: a lot of money for a 19 year old incredible like, has the detail come out? Like, have they been tracking this for for a long time? Apparently, have discussions yeah. been going on all summer? Well,
1: well, apparently they've been looking at him for a few years. That's what the story I read this morning. That they've tracked him for a hell of a long time. As in, it's not just a guy who's appeared in the radar. It's a young player who they have kept an eye on for maybe three or four years.
2: And he was going to join the other bigger clubs in twelve months. So you might have thought he could. They needed to snap him up now. But when you're paying that figure, I don't think snap up is a term you can use. Like it's it's it's. It's a phenomenal figure. This is pay. what they've got
1: themselves into now, though, isn't it? Manchester, Even more so than in the Alex Ferguson era. Manchester United now are seen as the club. If you're selling and they're the buying club, you're not just adding a couple of million. You're adding you, probably 25%, 30%. That's uh, the call
2: you seat. want to receive. Yeah. If, you, if you have a player that's... a well, hello, any, Ed. Yeah, you're going on buzzing. Crate and everyone is punching the air in the office when you get the call from <laughs> Ed because you are like, going, right, no matter what he offers here, we'll just continuously say no because they're under pressure to make the signings. They have a bottomless pit of money. They need to start showing that they can operate properly in the transfer market, which now just seems to be, can he do the deal? Mm-hmm. No one really seems to care that much. I mean, in, in, in reality, it doesn't really matter how much they pay for him. It's not like th- these weaken the financial position of the club or they have to cut back in other areas. They don't have to sell other players or weaken the squad to facilitate him coming in at that price because they've got so much money. Um, but it's it's... It's ridiculous. Like it is, like we've been saying for years, for 15 years, that stuff is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> finally, it's finally, finally it's, it's, it's,
3: it's 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 Does not it matter though how much they paid for him? Because here's, it does, I think it does matter. Um, aside from whether, you know, how it affects Manchester United's mm. business situation, their bottom line and so on. It affects his status uh, on arrival. So, say for instance, he was someone like uh, David Bellion or Gabriel Obertan, one of these kind of I mean, essentially...
1: That's what he is. He,
3: he's, yeah. <laughs> the, the, he's a the, young player with promise. Players with similar kind of profile. You know, mm. a young, uh, quick French player. Um, now these these guys, when they arrived in the past, arrived for tiny transfer fees. Uh, you know, a million, a couple of million, whatever. And it was kind of, well, maybe this guy will work out. You know what I mean? Maybe you know, we'll give him a couple of runs in the in the League Cup and see how he goes. You know what I mean? So... It that affected a few things. First of all, it affected the perception of of everybody of the player when they arrived. You know, the the you're immediately categorised as a sort of a prospect type player, and it also uh, affects the pressure on the player to deliver. You know what I mean? It's it's a case of well, here I am. I'm going to do my best, and hopefully it all works out. This guy is coming in under a, with, with a record fee as the most expensive french player of all time according to monaco if you take the monaco's figure then that makes him more expensive than zidane um i mean that's a totally different situation the, the fee actually does make a huge difference there i mean how do you think how do you think it,
2: it depends on him because
3: that? i mean i didn't know much about this
2: fella up until this week reading about him it, he he could well be, I've read a couple of his quotes saying things like, which you always hear players say this when they're asked, is the transfer f- fee just paid for you something that's going to weigh heavily on your shoulders? And they always try and dismiss it by saying, that's nothing to do with me. I'm just happy to be here. I'm a footballer. Whether they pump me for, for a million or, or 50 million, I'm still going to give my all. He may be like phenomenal levels of kind of level headedness or maturity or an ability to, completely zone out from all the noise and the, and all the, the, the hype that goes with the transfer and all the expectation and all the headlines and all the focus on him. He may be. I'd be astonished if he is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I suppose it, it it does matter for him on a personal level because he's going to walk into the dressing room and there'll be expectations immediately from the players, um, certainly from the supporters and the media. But financially, I don't think the club are wrong to, to pay it because they can afford it. It it does weaken their case probably in every subsequent transfer deal that they do from (laughs) now on because people will use this as an example they paid for that for him so we can really screw these lads here.
1: Well I'll tell you one man who they don't say that about in the English transfer market and that is uh, Daniel Levy I think at Tottenham Hotspur Hmm. the latest player who he has failed to sign after some hardballing with West Brom is Saito Barahino. Now, the player himself has tweeted, sad how I can't say exactly how the club has treated me, but I can officially say I will never play Jeremy Peace, <laughs> being the chairman of West Brom. <laughs> uh, maybe a heat of the moment reaction there from Barahino?
3: Yeah, he is a uh, an angry young man, Saito Barahino. He's a, he's an impulsive... Look, he's a young guy, fire in the blood, you know? And, he's, uh, and he feels like he's been uh, messed about here. They've, they've trodden on his dream, and he's, he's mad as hell, and he's not going to take it anymore. I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure what to think of this, because on the one hand, um, Soderbergh, who know, is still presumably getting paid by West Brom, and he's supposed mm-hmm. to play for them, and that's his job, and, and he should just do his job. On the other hand, West Brom are trying to profiteer off his back. You know, West Brom are trying to make money off it. Their, their greed has stood in the way of his career. Is his, is his rage justified?
2: I'd love to know specifically what he means by, I I can't talk publicly about how the club has treated me. Because if it's a simple case of, listen, we're going to wait until we get X amount, and if we don't get X amount, you're staying. And if they've delivered that in a fairly polite, respectful way to him or his agent, then he's got no real gripe. Like, just deal with it. That's a business you're in. Get on with it. Transfer fees are going up and up, and they're absolutely right to try and squeeze Tottenham or whoever. But it's the other stuff. If... If Peace has been like particularly rude or, or, or just fobs him off or in some way it got particularly vicious in, in, in the, the private discussions between them, um, then it becomes personal and then you can understand why Berehina would be disgusted with the idea that him playing well now would, would please this man.
3: Well, apparently West Brom have to automatically fine him now for his breach of their social media policy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we're going to play a game here we've never played before. The game is, you are Tony Pulis. Okay. So you are Tony Bulis. How do you know we haven't played this before? Well, I, can, I mean, I would have remembered it, definitely. That's true. Uh, you are Tony Pulis. Could you have played n- it all fair. Eh? You now have to, to uh, deal with this situation. What are you going to do?
2: Well, if I'm Tony Pulis, I assume I would have had the cup on to make sure my relationship with the player stayed as healthy as possible throughout all this. So every day in training, how are you getting on? How's your head? Keep your head down. This will all work out. If you go, wish you well. If you stay, you know, if this is the right club for you. Don't get annoyed now. You'll get that move eventually. I think he probably does have to fine him hmm. for the tweet. Because if he doesn't, then there's no point in having a disciplinary procedure. And Pulis apparently is hot on that stuff. Um Certainly, pick him in the, Like, is that the question? Like, do you do you pick him in the team or not? Like, if if Barry sitting there and he's genuinely saying I'm not going to play again, well, that's down. Then Pules is going to have to come up with fairly persuasive tones and 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 a hell of a pitch to get him back on side. If that if he's apt, that could just be a rash, and idiotic he, thing to he say.
1: Didn't and fairness, he, he also said it about the chairman, which some might say is less wise, but it does mean that. At least he hasn't. He hasn't alienated his manager.
2: Maybe Pulis agrees with him. Maybe Pulis goes, yeah, in fairness, the chairman is an awful (laughs) so-and-so, but you can't tweet it publicly. Me and you know it, but you can't tweet it publicly.
3: Yeah. I mean, if he did pick him and Berrino then just refused to play or just sat there with his arms folded, did a Tevez on it or whatever, you know. Tevez, even Tevez said he didn't actually really do that, you know, when he was told to play and refused. I mean, I've never actually heard of that happening you know it's obviously something which is
1: player actually not playing
3: well once you're in that situation there's this sort of social pressure on you to do your you know do your job is, is too much, even for a man as angry as Barahino. All
1: right, let's head over to Farrow to speak to Emmett Malone, who's there for the Irish Times to cover the, well, obviously the Ireland against Gibraltar. Emmett, but first of all, we've been talking about the transfers uh, that have gone through, and a couple that happened. And another one is John Walters, of course, uh, yeah. who was trying to join a number of clubs, apparently. Uh, Stephen Quinn, we heard, was saying that um, the, there was a bit of banter floating about because his heat map around England yesterday must have been everywhere. Uh, there's no actual problem here in terms of his his mindset for the couple of international games coming up is there
0: no i don't think so um walter seemed to be kind of involved in a, a little bit of a game of brinkmanship with stoke because he wanted a you know a, a longer term deal i think they were offering him two years he wanted three. Um, and uh, and that was a bit of an issue going on. Um, I, it's been a strange week in terms of the you know what's been said about it, kind of going back and forth. I mean, O'Neill said that it, the, the player's preference was to stay at Stoke. Uh, Keane suggested that he would have liked to get away. I presume the terms of the deal and offer from Norwich were better in terms of it being a kind of longer term thing. But um, you didn't get the sort of sense, even when uh, Walters was kind of sending out jokey tweets about it when it when it fell through, that this was a kind of um, uh, buried. Sort of situation where he was going to throw a strop and refuse to play for the club ever again. It just didn't really seem to be on on that sort of scale. And uh, you know, and you know, the the O'Neill when he talked about the whole thing, I mean, it it, it struck me as as astonishing that this kind of thing could um, impinge on the preparations for qualifying games. But uh, O'Neill really did feel seemed to be very relaxed about it all, and and suggested the suggestion was very clear that 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 you know uh, Walters will be fine.
3: Roy Keane was uh, speaking to the media uh, yesterday, I think, Emmett, yeah. and uh, yeah. talked talked a little bit about James McCarthy and he wasn't too concerned that McCarthy had a knock uh, and so on. Yeah, um,
0: yeah he went off on one of his great ones about, uh, about he'd be disappointed if uh, players like James were com- coming in, you know, and didn't have a knock, you know, a midfielder should have a knock. You should be hitting players. Players should be hitting you. And uh, if you're not uh, carrying something, then you're probably doing something wrong. Um, it was it was kind of uh, it was, you know, one of those lovely kind of things that uh, Keane just slightly goes off on. Well, he changed it. he
1: changed his mind on that one then because in his book, wasn't he talking about how much respect he has now, retrospectively,
3: for Ruud van Nistelrooy
1: and these guys who wouldn't go in, wouldn't even start a game unless they were 100 percent fit.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think I think one of the great things about Keane is he, he, he reserves the right to change his tune at will, you know. But uh, but perhaps there'd be a thing as well about uh, there being a slight difference between a, a Ruud van Nistelrooy and the sort of player that uh, that Keane imagined himself to be and uh, possibly hopes that uh, McCarthy will become, which is more a player who should be getting knocks and get, and dishing them out, you know, uh, is- there in the centre midfield if he's going to dominate games. And, and and I guess that's um, that's something that we really haven't seen McCarthy do on the
3: sort of scale that we. We'd like to. Is there a bit of an undertone to that, though? Because, you know, he's missed a few games, and Keane, he mentioned Everton again. Uh, These Everton players are all fit, which is good which is a reference, I suppose, to his previous um, suggestion yeah. that Everton are, are always... I, I think there's me. certainly
0: an undertone of something with Everton, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, it was Everton who asked that um, that McCarthy have a scan on his knee uh, on this knock that he'd taken out of the game at the weekend. And, um, you know, the Aidan McGeady, this dates back to March when, you know, there seems to have been this baffling kind of, you know, miscommunication or breakdown in communication uh, where... Um, uh McGeady takes an injection to play in the Poland game and then, you know, a couple of months later comes in and, and talks to us and, and it actually expresses surprise himself that uh that he was selected for the Poland game because he felt he was in such poor shape. But when they select him and they tell you know and, and it's decided that he needs an injection to get through the game he just takes it and nobody bothers to tell Everton about this and they're they're put out about that. And then you know you come back back to that June uh, sequence of games where he plays against England, and Martin O'Neill comes back in a little while later and expresses amazement that um, that uh, McGeady agrees to play in the England game, suggesting it's it's not a you know it's not an issue, and yet by the Thursday uh, can't really train and has to pull out of the Scotland game, which has always been the more important match, um, and so he's criticising the player. Uh, the player is, by implication, uh, criticising the manager for having selected him, and uh, the club are, you know, criticising everybody. Uh- um, for for uh, for the kind of irresponsibility of March and uh, the way they were kept out of the loop, so there's certainly uh, something kind of uh, rumbling along there with uh, with Everton and 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 the FAI. But that said, um, uh, O'Neill said that everything's fine. You know that they, they've they've papered over it all, but that, you know as you say, the keen comments suggested that it's it's not quite uh, it's not quite put to bed.
3: Has Aidan McGeady kind of bricked himself into a corner a little bit here then? Because um, if you know Martin O'Neill, obviously it seems wasn't happy with him playing that in the game. Uh, and you know, missing out the more important one. Everton, you know, his situation there looks quite bleak now. I mean, it
0: really does. Yeah, I think I think uh, McGeady's situation is is far from ideal. Uh, he, you know, but um, he, O'Neill's criticism of Man O'Neill like loves him like a child. You know, he kind of talks about him like a slightly errant son. You know, he uh, he um, you know he, he criticizes him, but it's all in the context, and it's all absolutely clear. You know, if if not in the quotes that actually make the paper, perhaps uh, that that certainly you know in. in in, in the kind of tone of the conversation, um, that uh, he is an absolute favorite of him, and I think he feels entitled, um, to, to perhaps uh, publicly criticize him because uh, the player himself will certainly understand that it's against the background of uh, of kind of devoted admiration. Um, but uh, but McGeady's um, comments then were were strange, uh, I, I think a little strange, and O'Neill. Uh, I I think was more expressing a, a, a certain amount of exasperation that uh, McGee, you know, really hasn't been fully fit for a very long time. I mean, you know, really most of the time he's been at Everton, he's had this kind of underlying groin, stroke, hamstring problem, um, and doesn't seem to have been able to completely shake it off. And uh, and that is certainly hampering his uh, progress at, at Everton. He spends you know a lot of time out of the team. They have obviously strengthened their their side um, in the window and. With Aaron Lennon coming in, his his his, his position certainly looks um, uh, even weaker. So it's it's not a good situation for McGeady. I think when he came back to Everton, everybody really expected him to thrive there. He had some good games and uh, at a time that he wasn't completely fit. But I think people expected him to push on as he got fit. And he just hasn't pulled that off. And now I think you know we've had talk in the window just closed, and and I, I suppose he kind of continues to rumble on that there's the possibility he'll go out on loan, and that's uh, that's uh, you know not a great situation for him at this stage in his career. Richie, would you? Uh uh, would you be concerned about
1: this rift that uh, Emmett describes there has developed over the last year or so between, Ever- between Everton, O'Neill, FAI?
2: I remember asking uh, an international manager in the last 18 months to explain something like this. I said, How are we reading that there's a lack of communication between the FAI and the club, in this case Everton? I said, How is that possible with all the different ways they have a contact in each other? And he basically said, Well, it's. Like it's not an unfortunate or like an unavoidable thing that you can't get in touch with someone. It's it's a policy that they actively pursue. You don't keep the club up to date with what you're doing because when managers of the Premier League clubs were ringing him, he said he just wouldn't answer the phone because you know all you're going to hear from that manager is something that is going to benefit the club. Yeah, it's going to be said, bad news. For in you, no yeah. way will any club manager in the, in anywhere in football select his club sides based on <laughs> what the, the the international manager would would prefer so why do they expect us to do it in reverse this is his thing so it's uh i assume it's 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 obviously it's very public we know that there's a rift between Everton and the FAI but um, I assume it's not the only club that is being kept in the dark of what goes on in the international scene Emma the, uh, uh, some of
1: what you talked about with McGeady there is also applicable probably to Darren Gibson he's had a hell of a lot of injuries over the last couple of years but more recently more seriously he's been involved in this drink driving incident they've been banned from driving got a lot of community yeah. service and all these kind of things it seemed like right. Martin O'Neill was trying to keep it light you enough when question about this
0: might all be at one on Darren Gibson by, by now S- like. say it again sorry I, I think the uh, FAI and Martin O'Neill and Everton might all be pretty much at one on Darren Gibson at this stage. Um, you know, he, he really, um, the last couple of years have been a disaster for him. Obviously, you could trace it back in some ways to the cruciate ligament uh, injury that he uh, did while playing for Ireland, which was very unfortunate. But um, but there's absolutely this sense. I, I, I mean, you know, it's funny. A lot of what O'Neill said about Gibson the other day was, you know, virtually a repeat of what he said about McGeady in terms of the player really needing to kind of Get himself fit to make the most of his opportunities, and and Keane talked about him yesterday as well, as there was a real sense, you know, talk of you know, kind of knuckling down and uh, getting himself back in the first team, and there really is just this kind of collective sense, although it's not really um, articulated clearly, that uh, that Gibson is somebody who's who's just letting whatever talent he had uh, just yeah, go to waste.
3: Yeah, it's not not looking great at the moment, but um, I'm just wondering what you think. Uh, Martin O'Neill obviously is going to speak a bit later today, but yeah. he usually doesn't reveal the team. But what no. uh, what's your guess at this stage?
0: Ah, uh, well, I, you know, look, I. I, I I don't think there'll be any great surprises on this one. Uh I we, we has, he has kind of shocked us in, in the past a couple of times with how positive the team will uh, has been, you know. I, I think it'll be straightforward enough. I think you know we'll see Robbie play, uh, I think and Wes um playing behind him. Um uh, McCarthy I'm assuming is fit. I mean there has been this question mark over over his knee. Um we're being told that it's okay. If it is, uh, I'm sure he'll start. I I I guess really the biggest question mark is over McGeady because um uh, O'Neill has has you know been a manager who has wanted to use him at every opportunity and has has uh, involved him when when as we've been saying he hasn't been completely fit in the past not 100 um, uh, percent he really you would think has not done enough over the last few weeks in pre-season and in the first couple of weeks of the season to to merit inclusion here but against Gibraltar maybe they'll go I think the other big question mark is go- is the goalkeeper. Um, uh, when he was naming his squad, uh, O'Neill was clear that experience was a big thing for this game. It was, you know, obviously there's, there's three points up for grabs. And um, no matter how, um, to the extent to which you would take for granted that we beat Gibraltar, it still has to be done. And um, and he, he talked, the way he talked about his goalkeeping situation at that point seemed to suggest he would stick with um uh, she given, but uh, yeah, after the first few weeks of the season, you would have to say that if uh, if um, Darren Randolph is ever going to feel that he has a, 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 a you know a shout it, it's this time I think there'd be a certain merit to to, to giving him his chance here and uh, seeing how he does All right Emmett listen, enjoy the game. Thanks for talking to us thank you. That's Emmett over in Farrow there had
1: of the game tomorrow night. Richie, what what do you think of those dilemmas that he mentioned in the team stage? Surely Shea given wouldn't have been brought back in, then brought back into the team only to be dropped at this stage?
2: I think because of the fiction, because because of who it's against, it it's an odd scenario. It doesn't matter who O'Neill picks the three points you would imagine are guaranteed. I can't imagine any scenario, any selection he can put out that you would that would put the result in jeopardy. But so he, he can play he can go after whatever area he wants here. Whether he wants to put Robbie in to boost his goal tally, whether he wants to put bring David Ford back in to boost his confidence, give Shay Given another cap, or, or uh, Darren Randolph, Darren Randolph another ca- cap. Um, it does. I find it very hard to get. I, like I'm working on this match tomorrow night <laughs> on the panel, so I, I had hoped I would have some better formed ideas by then. But I find it very hard to 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 get too drawn into what's going to happen in this. We're going to win, and and and. Like that, that's if we don't like that. There's, there's no scenario I can imagine in my mind where we're not going to win the game. So, yeah. all the usual discussions about who to play and how to play them, I don't think of that I, I find it very hard to get too excited by it yeah, because I'm hoping, we're going to
1: win. I'm hoping the players are getting a little bit more riled up than Richie here, or else we could surely end up
3: dropping he, points. He might be riled up, yeah. Robbie, Robbie Keno. But why did you see what Martin O'Neill said about him the other day? No, he said. I wish Robbie Keane was 27 instead of nearer to 37. Yeah. say it's quite old. Robbie Keane turned 35 in July.
1: No, but he's nearer to 37 Near. than 27.
3: Why well, he, why not Why not say, I wish Robbie Keane was 17 rather than closer to 51? <laughs> I mean, it just seems a bit... Why, why are we suddenly mentioning this 37 age? 35, you know, 35 isn't so bad. 37. Uh, 37's old. Thirty-seven dollars for an language. international striker. Thirty-five, you know, maybe. Thirty-seven, maybe not. Would you be highly insulted if you were Robbie Keane? At
2: the uh, at being like linked to being nearly thirty-seven. <laughs> I wish Rich,
3: Richie Sadler was twenty-one instead of closer to you know fifty. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I'm 36. I see, I don't think 37 is that offensive an age. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Although you you aren't uh, still trying to pass yourself off as a professional athlete, <laughs> to be fair.
2: <laughs> I gave that up years
1: ago. Richie, we're going to take we're going to take 6 points by the way because the Georgia game is the more interesting one on Monday.
2: Georgia is far less straightforward. Um y- y- yes, we'll get 6 okay. points, but it, uh, it, it could be tricky enough on Monday. We look forward to your
1: feigning excitement about the game on national television we, tomorrow night. Forty-five
2: minutes of build-up. Oh, why yeah. am I saying
3: this in public? I know I'm, I'm
2: going to get a phone call later. Going, why are we running early. down? Why are we running down our
3: business? <laughs> what time do you say this is kicking off? At? We're on air at
2: seven o'clock. Oh, Kick right. off, straight off, straight off, away, off, off is seven forty-five. So we have. A lot of time to fill. Are, no, you, are you, no. you
3: opening up the phone lines maybe to the public?
2: <laughs> ask the panel. Maybe. Yeah. Hashtag tweet, ask the panel. Tweet the panel, yeah. Richie, enjoy it. Thank you. See you, lads.
3: All right, that's, that's good manners. number
4: of players have played, but they're still in the squad. I wonder, did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job?
3: No, absolutely not. No, 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 no I've seen none of their business. You know what I was going to do? It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> And we want to win football matches. There's nothing to tame, you know, some sort of animal, you know what I mean? Um, you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do. He makes me look like Mother Teresa. You know, he's, um, I don't know, and we want to win football matches. We've had a lovely few days, the hotel's been lovely, the food's been excellent, training ground is lovely, no potholes, uh, we've had footballs. It's been great, bibs, everything, it's been major progress. And we want to win football matches.
1: Well, I for one, can. i am looking forward to Ortiz pre-match coverage of Ireland versus Gibraltar <laughs> yes. after that hard sell by Richie Sadler there. Your own excitement levels about this game?
3: Uh, you know, moderate, moderate excitement. I wish it wasn't on Friday night, to be honest. You're not a
1: Friday night game fan?
3: No, I don't. I'm not. Why couldn't you? I mean, this week of football thing is such nonsense. It's rubbish, isn't it? It's terrible. You do end up seeing a little bit more football.
1: And I've seen, I've seen a bit more of the other teams in our group... Notably, Poland than I would normally have. But mm. is that enough to justify having to watch, having to wait all <sighs> Fr- Friday and Monday? Probably isn't great.
3: No, it's terrible. I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, it's me. I'm whining here like, you know, a granddad. Absolutely. I understand that. But it just doesn't fit into my You're actually wearing a, a cardigan as well. Like I'm wearing the, a, a brown cardigan that does look like I'm in a retirement castle here. <laughs> complaining Morning about UFA yeah, week of football but seriously I, I I don't want football on Friday night I'm just not that it doesn't fit in it doesn't fit in I need to you can't you have to it's fine saying you can structure your life around football and I do do that but you know it's when football just starts saying oh yeah well I'm gonna be on Friday night as well how'd you like that how'd you like you like apples how' do you like them apples I'm kind of like well you know, I am already trying to make I'm already trying to fit you in. We've we've got a well worn routine here. Now you're saying Friday night I've got to say, no, Friday night I've got to watch this game. No, yeah, they're playing Gibraltar. No, yeah, the Gibraltar do have a team. No, I I have to watch it. You know, and Monday, yeah, I'm gonna have to yeah, Monday Monday as well. It's just, just Saturday. Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Tuesday. Pfft <laughs> What's the problem, Alan?
1: There was an insight into Kennedy's weekly conversation with Michelle Platini. Quite an interesting dialogue. Uh, The refugee crisis has been brought into even sharper focus around the world with the horrible images of the little Syrian boy who was drowned off the coast of Turkey. Uh, We're joined by Stefan Ersfeld of ESPN in Berlin who has been following the well, the story over there in Germany where hundreds of thousands of refugees have been allowed into the country and this sort of spirit, I guess, if you want to use that term, seems to have permeated the football grounds because we've heard these uh, stories and seen these images of signs around Bundesliga stadia, uh, refugees welcome, this sort of thing. Stefan, who, how did that come about, first of all, in, in the football context? Who organised this?
4: Well, it's basically a movement from uh, from ultra groups of uh, all clubs, all um clubs. It's got a long tradition in Germany. Um, Ultragooms are deemed pretty much left-wing ever since like the 1990s when uh, Germany had a major racism problem and uh, they formed a league of active football fans working against racism. And uh, over the last couple of years, they've uh, they've done loads of work uh, against racism in German football. I had several projects um, earlier this year clubs have invited along uh, refugees to to matches um and it hasn't stopped really so um mm. it's it's been there for a while for at least a year
3: well it's great to, it's it's great to see it Stefan. because particularly every time um that you hear a story or usually if you're in if you're in ireland or in england and you hear a story about football fans in germany it's usually about like Uh, neo-Nazis on the Sud Sud Tribune in Dortmund or, you know, uh, right-wing football fans in East Germany. Um, The reality actually appears to be that football fans are a lot more progressive than that.
4: They certainly are, Um, but maybe that's also because of the fights between uh, right-wing and left-wing groups, Um, especially uh, in a city like Dortmund, where you have a strong right-wing movement still. Uh, You've got a political party in, in the town parliament. So um what fan clubs and uh ultra groups did in Dortmund, for instance is they uh had beer mats printed saying "No beer for races um also had uh, organized cups for for refugees um coming in coming to dortmund so uh, it's been a movement which which has been going on for well at least a year um but germany had had a problem with uh but racism and uh, rallies against the uh, migrants, Muslim migrants or refugees, or, for at least a year too. So um, they've been pretty progress, progressive. But um, they needed to do that, and they're not only like football fans. Are not about violence only. So. Um,
3: do you see the the kind of grassroots initiative of supporters being reflected then at higher levels in the sport of football? I mean, for instance, the German FA, the DFB, or various of the clubs, have they given any indication they're prepared to follow the lead of the supporters?
4: Ah, they certainly are. Um, just a couple of minutes ago, Bayern Munich announced putting like 1 million euros uh, into refugee work. Um, they're also going to parade the uh, Refugees on the pitch for the next home game against Augsburg. Um, Schalke Nuffer have uh, published a video saying, um, well, stand up if, if you're a human or uh, fighting racism with one of their uh, former Germany internationals, Gerhard Asamoah, one of the first blacks to uh, play for Germany. Uh, so it's, it's gone through most of the clubs. Uh, they've invited refugees to the games, uh, kept a low profile on it for a while. Even Dinamo Dresden, who um, you were talking about earlier, or referring to earlier, um, have done this. So um, it's quite a common theme, but it's, it's work that needs to be done because uh, it's got a wide reach, footballer. Like you see, oh, you saw the pictures of uh, the refugee welcomes banners on the stands uh, in Ireland, yeah, So it's a good signal.
1: Oh, In general, in Ireland, though, I think, outside of the sporting sphere, it seems as though, uh, and in the UK especially, it seems like the uh, the leaders of the countries are reluctant to step forward and say, look, we have to take these people in here. It's the fair and it's the right thing to do. And this might change uh, after the outcry over the, the images of, of this young boy um, over from Syria. But as, as things stand, it just seems to have been too politically difficult for leaders around here to, to take this sort of a stand. In Germany, it seems different. The the leaders there seem to... Is there just a different mood in the country at the moment that um, everybody feels that there won't be any political backlash to taking in hundreds of thousands of refugees?
4: Well, it took Germany a while uh, until they, they found out they needed to uh, actually take care of the, the refugees coming into Germany. Um, there were rallies against the refugee... Uh, homes in, in Eastern Germany, um, they were fire attacks on, uh, on refugee homes, 340 alone this year and uh, there was an outburst of, outburst of violence in Heidenau in, Sex, uh, in Saxony a couple of uh, weeks ago and that's only when um, Chancellor Merkel realized uh, she needed to step up and do stuff so until then uh, the problem wasn't really handled in Germany, so but the mood has changed, uh, because there'll be uh, up to one million Im- immigrants coming into Germany this this year, and uh, well, it's dominated the news ever since. Or uh, Greece went away, basically. I mean,
3: it is a, it is a very big uh, it is a very big number uh, for Germany to absorb. And what I'm wondering is how is it that uh, Merkel uh, and you know the other political leaders in Germany feel that they can take this step. When in Ireland, uh, for instance, uh, also in the UK, we see the leaders just cowering back from it. Um, I mean, what we have here, when when people are polled on this, is a is a pretty clear 50-50 split, where half the people are saying, "Yes, of course, uh, you know, we need to we need to take in more people," and half of the people are saying, "Oh no, we don't have uh, we don't have the resources; we can't possibly accept in any refugees." Um, so I wonder what the situation is in Germany that Angela Merkel is dealing with. you get a sense that most people are now in favor of, um, um, that most people are now in favor of, and why might it be different in Germany from a similarly wealthy country such as the UK?
4: Well, we've got our tradition, our uh, history, uh, which is, I guess, not similar to uh, to the uh, UK tradition, uh, history. And uh, it took them a while to actually accept that those people come into Germany and uh, there are still ongoing discussions um, about migrants and refugees and um, how to send people back from, from the balcony states. Um, but we also had not only the World War II situation where we uh, well, not treated people well at all, but also had the, um, well, the fall of the Berlin Wall where loads of people came in from, from the east to the west So people have been through this situation before and it's been cited often enough that uh, Germany has done it uh, in the past.
1: Okay, Stefan Ersfeld, thanks very much for getting us up to date with that uh, that story there. Cheers for talking to us. Cheers. Yeah, a nice update there from Stefan about the clubs themselves getting involved, Bayern Munich, putting uh, not a massive amount of money by their standards in, but putting some money in and also... Uh, bring getting the kids along, getting refugee children along to take part in the games, take part in those events as mascots, which is all very good. He was making the point that Germ- Germany's, um, shall we say, patchy history in world events can is maybe uh, playing into their their newfound welcoming spirit. Although it does seem very newfound. I mean, he's saying even up to a few weeks ago, it wasn't like it wasn't as though everybody was. We probably shouldn't be painting everybody in Germany as welcoming any refugee from anywhere with open arms.
3: No, definitely not. I mean, that's going to be controversial in Germany. That's what makes it, that's I think what makes it quite admirable what their uh, leaders have done because they know that there's going to be a cost to them in terms of some voters are going to be very angry about this. But they've said, they've just said, okay, that that may be, but we're going to try and do the right thing. I mean, I don't know. You would imagine that an element of atonement, a kind of a sense of historical atonement does play into what, uh, you know, the German... Government decides, you know, on a major humanitarian crisis like this, that obviously has to play a part in their thinking. But remember, earlier on, we were saying um, that the country that has uh, accepted most refugees uh, per capita in Europe till now is Sweden, which was a neutral country uh, during the uh, Second World War. And while, you know, is not without its own problems, I mean, every country has problems, isn't, isn't I would imagine regarded as one of the more aggressive or one of the, the states that needs to do a lot of atonement for what it's done. I mean, there's a, there was an interesting point made today. Um, I mean, Hungary is, is actually one of the only countries I think we mentioned that has a lower rate of acceptance of refugee applications than Ireland. In fact, the lowest in Europe. So less than 10% of applications are accepted in, in Hungary. And there's a big problem in Hungary now because a lot of people are passing through there on the way to Germany. Um, the Prime Minister uh, of Hungary is uh, Viktor Orban and he is um, a piece of work. Right. Uh, he is talking about how Europe is full of fear. Hungarians are full of fear because of what is happening. And then, what is he afraid of? The thing he's afraid of is that all of these people who are coming into Europe are going to undermine and to, to sweep away Europe's precious Christian heritage. Uh, and it was pointed out then by Martin Schultz, who's the President of the European Parliament, that what does it mean to speak of a Christian heritage when, in order to preserve your Christian heritage, what you're doing is barring up uh, the border and saying, no, uh, you can't come in, uh, there's no room at the inn for you. Uh, if Christian heritage means anything other than a code for white, which is what? Victor Orban really means when he says that if it means anything other than that then surely it's your duty to you know, offer a bit of Christian charity
1: yep alright uh, before we go quick prediction on Ireland Gibraltar I mean an exact prediction not Ireland will win 5-0 uh, no. goal scorers uh,
3: Robbie Keane Robbie Keane Robbie Keane <laughs> Kevin Doyle and uh, let me think a
1: midfielder chipping in there Jay. Robbie Brady Robbie Brady from left back assuming he plays there
3: yeah, Robbie. There we'll see. Yeah,
1: all right, sense so yeah, so another, another international hat trick for Robbie Keane. You heard it here. Sixty-eight first. international goals. We've got, no- <laughs> <laughs> and
3: Wayne Rooney, of course, uh, to to add a few oh, goals. Yeah. So he'll probably break, break Bobby record, Charlton's yeah. record. Poor old Rooney. You know he's about to break the record, and all he has is an old Jeff Hurst popping over to say, "Not a patch on Bobby Charlton, that lad." Good player, but you know, Bobby Charlton. Uh, he's a front player. Bobby Charlton scored 49 goals from midfield. So <laughs> you know. Uh, but you know good good luck to Wayne and good luck to Robbie
1: we have got another podcast already out recorded today it features a big preview of the All-Ireland Hurling final uh, mostly from the Galway angle it should probably be said uh, we we'll also talked a little bit about the Dublin Mayo replay what else we have That's Serena Williams yeah and uh, a trailblazer for black female athletes in the U.S. Many, many years before Serena Williams. That also came up in discussion with U.S. Mer. Loads of great stuff in there. So have a listen today, or uh, it should all hold pretty well unless Serena gets knocked out in the next day or two. So you should be fine for at least until the weekend. Thanks very much for listening to this one. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Ken.
3: Thank you too. Aunt.
1: We'll talk to you again. Take care. that?
3: That's the second time it's gone off. Oh. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home those 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 boys.